Our dear Heavenly Father, you've blessed us with the gifts and the talents of so many. Leave it to us, Father, to count heads in a way that diminishes your glory rather than to take stock of how much blessing we've been given in every day of our lives, and particularly here on Sundays, Father. You gathered around us friends, neighbors, family, all of us brothers and sisters in the Lord, gifting each of us in a way that is intended to show your love through them. Let us never take that for granted, Father. I ask that as we study more on the gifts and on your assignment of gifts and of the purpose in them, that we would consider not only what others are doing for ourselves, but also what we can be doing for them, how our gifts, Father, can be put to use. Draw us closer to you through a united work of service. Cause us, Lord, to glorify you by putting in our hearts a desire to serve. Lead us, Father, into the right ways to serve so that our work might truly have its intended effect in the body. Let Oak Hill Bible Church, Father, be whatever you call it to be, with whomever you call to be here, so that in the day of our judgment, as we stand before you, we will hear the words we long to hear, that we have been good and faithful servants, and that we enter into your glory and pleasure. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we close chapter 12 today, and we enter into chapter 13, we're going to continue in our study of spiritual gifts And Paul, as I mentioned last week, is about to transition out of the phase of teaching that he's been in up to this point, teaching about spiritual gifts, and into the phase of correction. Remember the the word admonishment, that's one word you can use to label the entire book of 1 Corinthians, admonishing the church. Admonishment is the combination of teaching with correction. So we've had our teaching, or we're almost done now with our teaching. It's time to move into the correction. He's laid down so far the ground rules for how and why the church is gifted by the Holy Spirit. He's explained the nature of our gifting. He's explained the manner of its arrival. He's emphasized the purpose God had in assigning gifts to the body. And so now it's time for Paul to take that teaching and compare these principles that he's established against what the Corinthian church was actually practicing in their use of spiritual gifts. And I can tell you it's not going to be pretty. Because they are far from where they're supposed to be. It's ironic that the chapter on love, chapter 13, the one you hear so often at weddings, is not a chapter reflecting on love. It's a chapter correcting on the topic of love. Now, we stopped at chapter 12, verse 27. That's where we pick up again this morning. At that point, Paul had summarized his main point of teaching as he prepared at that stage to go into correction. And his summary was that the members of the church collectively, and now I'm talking about everybody who sits in this room or any building that calls themselves Christian, that that group of people collectively represent Christ's physical presence on earth while we await for his personal return. Every part of that body is important. Every member has a purpose in God's plan. Every member has to be actively engaged if that body is to be its most effective. Moreover, we do not want, nor do we need, everyone to be ministering in exactly the same fashion, nor do we expect us all to have exactly the same gifts. In fact, Paul has said that's impossible because the Lord has gifted us in a diversity of gifts as he wished for a purpose, and he did so at the moment of our salvation. So, with those truths now established as we end chapter 12 and prepare for chapter 13, we're going to see Paul now applying all of that truth to what is happening in the church in Corinth. And as we will see, the church is going to be found to be operating quite differently from those principles. Let's reread verse 27, and then I'll continue into verse 28 to begin today. Verse 27, Paul writes, Now, you are Christ's body, 
and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. I'm pausing there because we have to see where Paul's changing now, how he's moving into correction. And I began by repeating verse 27 because I want to set the context again. And then you notice into verse 28, Paul lists yet another list of spiritual gifts. Now, just like the list we studied earlier in the beginning of this chapter, this list is a set of examples, representative examples of giftings. It is not a comprehensive list. It is not all exhaustive. In fact, you'll notice this list differs from the one that was read just earlier in the same chapter. There are some repeated, but there's also some missing and some new ones have been added. That inconsistency, which we observed last time, amongst all the lists of gifts, anywhere you find them in the New Testament, that is a clear indication to us that when Paul lists gifts, he uses them as examples in order to illustrate a larger point, which, of course, leads us to ask the question, what's the point? We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. We don't want to get so wrapped up in trying to dissect the giftings that we miss the point in Paul having the example to begin with. So what is Paul's point now as he lists this new set? Well, to answer that question, you need to notice something important about the way Paul has written this particular list in verse 28. Paul ordered these gifts from most important to least important. In the Greek language, as Paul wrote this originally, the language makes clear that this is a hierarchical list from highest priority to lowest priority. In fact, even in our English translation, look in verse 28, you'll see even in our English, the English translators have tried to reflect that hierarchy in the way they've translated it. You see, he starts with saying first apostles, and then he starts numbering them second, third, and then eventually in the later gifts, he just puts then, then, and so on. Those connecting words are also present in the original Greek. So Paul was making a list of hierarchy here. He was putting gifts in an assigned order of importance. So the most important gifts are at the front of the list, and the least important gifts are at the end of the list. Now, if you're a good Bible student, if you've been paying attention, you should have a question pop in your mind right about now. What you should be asking yourself is this. You might say, well, earlier in this letter, in this very chapter, Paul made the point that every member in the body is equal and equally important and that no member is more important than any other. So now you see this and you wonder, well, has Paul changed his mind? Has he suddenly decided that some members are more important than others? And of course, you know, the answer is no. But the question still remains. How can that be? Well, where before Paul argued that the value of each member in the body is the same, regardless of what gift you get. Now he is discussing the relative value of the gifts themselves. I'm going to borrow from Paul's own analogy, the one he used earlier in this chapter. While a nose is no less a part of the body than your eye is, it is still fair to say we rely on our eyes far more often than we rely on our nose. On the other hand, when I need my nose, it becomes all important in that moment. Similarly, each person in the church is equally a part of the body, and therefore we are equally able to contribute in some way or fashion according to our gifting. But nevertheless, spiritual gifts vary in their relative impact and in their relative importance to the body of Christ based on the needs of the body. Every person in this body has a role to play. Some spiritual gifts, by their very design, are more powerful and more universally needed as a rule within the church. But then there'll be other spiritual gifts that minister on a smaller scale or under very specific circumstances. 
But like the nose, when they're needed, there is no substitute for them. So in short, all people in the body are equally important and necessary, but spiritual gifts are not created equal in their capacity to edify the body. So let's look at the list and consider those principles. Paul says the gift of apostleship is the most important gift in the body. The gift of apostleship, remember, is important because it was the gift from God that allowed the church to be established in the first place. The word apostle means one sent with a message. And the whole idea of an apostle was one who could go where the gospel had not yet come and they could start something out of nothing, which is an incredibly powerful gift. Without that gift, there'd be no church. Without the church, there'd be no other purpose for the giftings. It starts everything in God's economy. Second in importance is profit. Prophet are those who deliver the word of God to the church. And of course, without the word of God, the church would remain in the dark concerning God and his revelation, his purposes in Christ. Nothing is more powerful to edify the body than the word of God. So the word of God must take a prominent role in God's plan. Now, as we looked at earlier in this chapter, those two gifts, the gift of apostleship and the gift of prophet as it applies to new revelation of God, those two gifts no longer operate in the church today. They have ceased operating, for the canon of Scripture has been made complete, and with the last apostle's death, there have been no new apostles appointed by Christ. But in Paul's day, they were still operating. When he wrote this letter, we had apostles, certainly Paul was one. We had prophets, there were still men writing Scripture, Paul was one. So, in their day, they took prominence. Today, that would leave the third gift, the third highest prominent gift, that is, teaching, to be the most important gift in the body Today, teaching is the gift of illuminating Scripture and bringing it to bear on the lives of Christ's people. It allows us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is therefore the essence of edification. Remember, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So the teacher is the one who wields that sword on behalf of the body of Christ. And then from that point, Paul continues down the other gifts in that list in diminishing order of importance. Now, remember, as I said already, this is not an exhaustive list of gifts, is it? Well, that raises a new question. If Paul did not set out to arm us with the definitive list of gifts in a definitive order of priority, if he skipped some gifts, if he's left out some gifts, which clearly he has, well, then what's the value of a prioritized list of partial gifts? What's his point again? What is he trying to teach us? Well, to understand the point fully, we need to keep reading through to the end of chapter 12. Look at verses 29 through 31. Paul says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? And all do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Paul has asked now a series of rhetorical questions to begin making his point of correction. And he says, not all believers are apostles, right? Now, some believers were certainly gifted and called to be apostles in the church. Paul was one of them. But not all Christians possessed the gift of apostleship. And nor could a believer join the ranks of apostles merely because they liked the idea of becoming an apostle. They saw someone do it. It seemed to be an attractive kind of position. It looked very powerful. Maybe it had some other appealing characteristics. Maybe they just aspired to do great things for God. And so they set their gaze on Paul and they said, an apostle, that's what I can do. I'm going to be the world's greatest apostle. No, it doesn't work that way. 
It doesn't work that way. It's a gift by definition. It's assigned. It's not taken. Paul says this truth is self-evident. He phrases this as a rhetorical question because you and I already knew the answer before he phrased the question. Not everyone is an apostle. And by that same token, if that's true, then logically that same truth will apply to every gift in the list. We have prophets, or we've had prophets in the church, but not everyone is a prophet. We have teachers gifted around us, but not everyone is gifted to teach. We have, by that same token, all manner of giftings in the body, but not everyone has them all. Self-evidently so, because they're appointed by God, they're designed to be diverse, they are non-transferable, non-refundable, non-returnable. Then in verse 31, Paul gets to his point. Here's the reason why he has begun so much teaching on gifts. Here's the reason why he showed that there is a hierarchical value in giftings. Here's the reason why he's telling them, look around you, not everyone is the same. He says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now, the word for earnest in Greek, zelu, it literally just means to be zealous. That's where we get the word zealous from. So we want to be zealous for the better gifts. Now, some have come to this verse and completely misunderstood it. And as often can happen when you misunderstand Scripture, they've taken from it and created a false theology out of this one verse. Some have come to conclude that Paul is telling individual Christians, you and me and others like us, that in our individual walk, we should want for better gifts. So that if we find ourselves with a gift of administration, for example, we should look to move up the ladder and acquire the gift of miracles. Or if we have the gift of miracles, we should set our eyes on trying to obtain the gift of teaching. Or if I should be a teacher, don't be satisfied with that. You need to be an apostle. That's not true. First of all, if that were the interpretation of this verse, it would completely deny everything Paul just spent the entire chapter writing. Paul's not going to contradict himself on the last verse of the chapter, right? More importantly, it completely misunderstands the verse itself. The proper interpretation of verse 31 hinges on understanding that this phrase in Greek is written in the second person plural. In Texas, how would we say second person plural? Everyone? Y'all, right? Y'all. It'd be so much easier if the Bible was written in Texan. In Texas, amen. In Texan, we would say y'all. If Paul turned to us and used that term, you think you'd have a different sense of the meaning right away. You all seek for the better gifts. In other words, he's saying that the desires of the congregation should be to see the more important gifts expressed over the lesser important gifts in the body. Every congregation should earnestly seek to see those higher priority gifts take a higher priority in the congregation than the lower priority gifts. As a congregation, we should make our goal to support and to encourage those with those higher priority gifts who are around us, asking them to serve more than others, to do more than others, and to give our attention to them more than to the others, so that those greater gifts can have their greater work in the body, and not let those greater gifts get displaced by overdue attention to the lesser gifts. For then you've just turned everything on its head. In any gathering, there is only so much time available. There's only so much time and energy to be given to the gathering and to the function of the gathering and to the efforts of the gathering. You and I want that time to be used for the greatest possible benefit of this body. And while all the gifts are important, just like the nose is and just like the eye is, and everyone has a place and every gift has its time to be expressed and its purpose in the body, everyone gets their turn in some fashion as God designs. Nevertheless, we need to prioritize. We need to understand that if our choice is between hearing teaching 
and watching someone perform miracles, Paul says we should seek more to be taught than to see the miracles. Our flesh, our flesh will prefer the miracles every time, just as Israel did in the desert as they wandered. But our spirit will profit more from the teaching. If we have a choice to receive Bible teaching or to be healed, we are going to want for the healing, but we should seek for the teaching. Because the best healing can do is preserve your dying body another day. But the teaching is going to preserve your soul into eternity. And if you have a choice between teaching or hearing somebody speak in a foreign tongue, then we should seek for the teaching. Because while tongues fascinates us, Bible teaching matures us. It's no coincidence that churches that place an emphasis on seeking for signs or miracles or other dramatic displays of the spirit, those churches also tend to be very low in their knowledge of their practice of and their respect for Bible teaching. Because they sit at opposite ends of a spectrum. You remember the contrast? What was at the front of that contrast, according to Paul teaching? What was at the back? God knows that the thing that will draw us closest to him is a genuine, lasting, meaningful relationship through his word and not through some empty emotional display that takes the place of the word. An abiding knowledge of him is the call of scripture, not a fascination with him. Seek earnestly for the good part. You know that phrase that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 10 when he is meeting with Mary and Martha in their home and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet because she's enraptured by his teaching while Martha's busy taking care of the needs of the day in the kitchen and, and gets mad at Jesus for the fact that he's not making Mary get up and help. And Jesus says to her in Luke 10, 41, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Why is teaching at the forefront of this list? Because it is the only thing that is necessary, according to Jesus. Mary had chosen it because it is the good part. And then most importantly, it is the one thing that will not be taken away from you. Your spiritual maturity, your growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ is the one and only thing that goes with you into the kingdom. Now, if you had been a member of the Corinthian church in Paul's day and you were sitting somewhere as as a person read Paul's letter and you were at about this point in that letter, I can assure you, you were starting to squirm. The Corinthians had been practicing spiritual gifts in exactly the wrong way. Paul has taught that the gifts were assigned by God at the moment of our salvation. We heard this earlier in this chapter. But in the Corinthian church, they were being taught that they could obtain spiritual gifts either by learning them or by asking God for them. That's false. Paul taught earlier that God intended that there would be a diversity of gifts in the body because that made it better for the common good. This church had been teaching that everyone should aspire to the same gift and that they needed to use one common gift in unison as if it was some kind of secret handshake or some kind of initiation, right, where we all had to be lockstep doing exactly the same thing or it wasn't church. That's false. And Paul taught that the use of the gifts was for the common good, but the Corinthians in their prideful self-importance, which was common in the Greek culture, They had turned it into a display in which they could show off to each other with their gift, drawing attention to themselves and, most importantly, make distinctions between one another. Oh, you don't have the gift yet. Well, I have the gift. You need to come where I am and get my gift. Prideful, self-important, selfish, self-centeredness and a misuse of the gifts. And then lastly, and this is the most ironic one of them all, Paul has now taught that the gift of tongues 
is the least important gift in the strata of gifts. Least important in the sense of its power to edify, its usefulness and purpose within the body. But the Corinthians had chosen to elevate tongues as the gift of choice. In their church, this was the highest order gift. This was the gift they said everyone needed to go run after. And if they didn't have it, they hadn't arrived yet. They made it their goal to see the gift of tongues expressed every time the body was gathered by everyone in the body. And if that goal was not met, then somebody was doing something wrong. When we get to chapter 14, you'll see that Paul's point has been and is that concern. They had turned everything on its head. They had made the least important gift the most important, and they were using them in completely the wrong way. So how did they go so wrong? How did the Corinthian church go so far off in their understanding of gifts? Because we have to assume that when Paul visited this church, that he would have taught them this stuff properly. So where did it go wrong? How did they get so far off? How are they living in such pride and in such ignorance? How did they take a gift from God, which was intended for the edification of the saints, and turned it into an opportunity to glorify themselves. How does that happen? The answer is they were missing an ingredient. There is one key ingredient that if you miss it, if it's not present in your use of gifts, if it doesn't center you on why you have your gift and how you use your gift, then nothing else will work. The gift will not edify. No one will be pleased. The body of Christ will not be built up. It will be useless. And you all know what that one missing ingredient is, don't you? It's chapter 13. It's love. As I said, it's ironic that as we read this chapter now in weddings, it's completely lost its intended meaning. I don't mean that it doesn't have some value anyway, but but if you're a Bible student like me, you want to know what it really meant, not just what someone likes it to mean. What it had in mind was correcting people who were operating without the love that's required in order to make a gift into something useful. Let's look at this chapter. Paul says, I want to show you a far better way to use your gifts. First one, he says, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give up all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. We'll pause there. Paul begins his famous chapter, a beautiful chapter on love. And he does it with a series of exaggerated comparisons. Don't miss the fact that these are exaggerations for effect. Paul uses four examples of gifts as I count them. And there's a bit of a fudge factor here. It's not clear in all cases what gifts he's naming here, but some are clear. The first is of tongues, certainly. And he starts with tongues here because tongues is his concern in this church. It is the primary concern. In fact, I think I mentioned earlier in this chapter, in all the different places Paul will list gifts in this section of 1 Corinthians from chapter 12 to chapter 14, there's several places he takes time to list the gifts. There's only one gift that shows up in every one of the lists. It's tongues because that's the one he's concerned about in this church. And in the second example, it's the gift of prophecy. In the third example, it's the gift of giving, I would think. And in the fourth, it seems to be either the gift of martyrdom or a gift of perhaps faith. In each case of these gifts that he's listing, look what Paul does. He gives an extreme example of how the gift could be put to use. And by extreme, I mean it's exaggerated beyond what would actually be true. 
For example, he says, even if I had the ability to speak in the language of angels, friends, there is no language of angels. Here again, another opportunity for people to completely miss the point of Scripture and run off into a little corner on their own theologically. There's no gift of speaking like the tongue of an angel. He's being exaggerative to make a point. Even if I could talk like an angel, he says, it still depends on love. Look what he does with the prophet. The same thing. He exaggerates. He said, even if I could know all things, all mystery, all knowledge, nobody knows everything except Christ. But even if I could, he says, it would still require love. Even if I had the gift of giving and I gave away everything I possessed, even if I have the gift of faith and I took it all the way to the grave. Another extreme example. Nevertheless, he says, all of these things will fail when they're practiced without love. And then I want you to notice the failures change in each case, too. He makes a point across three different kinds of failure. First, he says, tongues becomes nothing but senseless noise, clanging symbols. In other words, if the point of tongues is to speak something that edifies. If I take out the love element, then my speaking goes from being edifying to being annoying. And more than just annoying, distraction. Where I might have been edified through something else, you're over here speaking in a way that's without love and you're causing a distraction which removes any benefit from it whatsoever. Like someone clanging a gong next to you while you're trying to concentrate on something better. That person has become useless and their noise has become offensive. Secondly, if a prophet doesn't use his gift or her gift in love, then that person, Paul says, is nothing. What he means is that while they might have wanted status or wanted for success or wanted to grab attention, now what he says is they've become meaningless, nothing. And that's very important for this church. The Corinthians were all about status. They were all about recognition. They lacked a loving motive, so therefore they gained no status, not with God, not with the church. And then finally, he says, in the last example, we would profit nothing if we use our gifts without love. And virtually without exception, anytime you see in the New Testament a reference to our profiting, it's a reference to our eternal reward. God assigns us eternal reward in heaven based on our service to him now. But that reward, he says, is contingent on our use of our gifts in love. Not in pride, not in spite, not in selfishness, but in love. If you want reward for your service, you better be serving in love or you might as well not serve at all. You're gaining yourself nothing. Love is the missing ingredient that allows our gifts to be useful, valuable, profitable. Love means being self-sacrificial, using what God has given us to meet the needs of others self-sacrificially. It means putting their needs above our own. And it sometimes means not using our gift at all if there is a greater need for a greater valued gift in the moment. Sit down, be quiet, stand aside, let the greater gifts do their work and wait for a better opportunity. That's love. Asking what's best for this church, not what's best for me. That's love. But now we know the word love has a lot of different meanings and it carries a lot of different meanings depending on what your background is, your culture, your experience, or even your language. Especially in a culture like Corinth. Can you imagine what the word love must have meant to a pagan Greek culture that used prostitutes in their worship services? What is love? When Paul says love is what you need, and I don't mean Paul McCartney. What does it look like? What does love look like from God's point of view? Well, that brings us to the beginning of chapter 13. We're not going to do all of 13 today. Let's do the, the next section, though. And in this section, Paul's eloquent and timeless description of love is at the heart. But consider how we've come into this moment as Paul now begins to describe love. His context is gifting. 
Now, clearly, we can apply these thoughts to much broader context than just gifting. But let's not overlook its context of gifting as we go through it. Beginning in verse four, Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not become, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Paul begins by defining agape love here with a list of behaviors. Some of these are negative. Some of these are positive. This list is not exhaustive. I hope that's pretty clear to all of us, right? This is a list of of things that typify love, but there are certainly other ways in which love can be shown, other parameters that define love. This is hardly the full list of things that define love. In fact, I think the list of things that define love is probably infinite. And yet, this is a pretty good start. Now, I'll give Paul credit. He did pretty good. It's a pretty good start to what love might look like. So let's just look at him briefly. And in each case, I want you to consider what he's saying about the use of gifts as well. First, he says, love is evident whenever I'm patient with someone else. When you are hurtful or rude to me, as I'm sure none of you would ever be, I wait for that moment of rudeness to pass without making any point of it. That's patience. Patience isn't just waiting in the DMV line. Patience is being careful not to show your impatience with someone else. When they delay me on the road, I don't cut them off. Yeah, that's convicting, isn't it? (laughs) Nor do I hold someone's offense against them. Now, in gifts, patience would imply that I give time and opportunity to others and I wait my turn. I'm patient with my opportunity. I'm not forcing myself into the moment when it's not appropriate. Secondly, Paul says love is kind. And of course, I could speak a whole sermon on each one of these. You certainly don't want me to do that. So I'm moving judiciously. Love, he says, is kind. What it means to me is whenever possible, I give a kind word, a thoughtful gesture, I smile, I enhance the lives of others, I welcome them into my life. My intent is to bless them by my presence, kindness in any respect. In the sense of a gift, it means I use my gift to please others. That their response to my gift is as important to me as my opportunity to express it. Next, he says, love is not jealous. I don't want to resent someone else for what they possess or for the success that is theirs. I don't let my lack of contentment become an excuse for me to hurt others, striking out at them because they have something I prefer. And in terms of giftings, I don't compare my gift to others. There's no gift in this room that I want above the one God has given me, no matter what that is. Love does not brag. Bragging is just elevating yourself at the expense of another. Bragging only works. If I raise my profile while diminishing another's and that's not loving. Instead, do as John the Baptist did. Diminish yourself so that Christ may be elevated. Or at least see to it that all of us rise together. And in terms of gifts, I don't want to use my gift to show off. I don't want to use it in such a way that it elevates me and not the Lord. And I don't want to use it in such a way that it diminishes you or your opportunity to participate. 
Next, he says, love isn't arrogant. Now, arrogance is offending someone else by the expression of our pride in some form. Love doesn't do that. We want others to be refreshed by our presence, not see us coming and think, oh, great, here he comes. And in terms of gifts, I don't want to intimidate or bully somebody else through the expression of my gift to cause them to retreat from their own participation because of somehow the way I carry myself leaves them thinking that they should stay out. And then in verse five, Paul says, love does not act in an unseeming, unbecoming way, never acts inappropriately. And what Paul's talking about here is the way we shame ourselves and embarrass others. That's not love. Caring for others means protecting them from the embarrassment of us doing dumb things. Because we love one another, we're not inclined to point out someone else's shame to them. We just feel it on their behalf. Don't make other people feel that. Act in a becoming way. And in terms of your gift, don't misuse your spiritual gift in such a way that you bring shame to Christ. And I would even include in that the failure to use your gift at all. If the absence of production in the body of Christ can be considered a mistake, and I think it should, then I think it's unbecoming for the body to not use what God has given you for his glory. And then he says, love does not seek its own first, but it seeks for the needs of others. I use a simple example. If there's one piece of pie left, it's not for you. It's for someone else. And in terms of gifts, I don't serve in my gift for my own pleasure. I ensure that whatever I do in my gifting is for someone else's benefit. And if someone else takes that last piece of pie, when you had your heart set on it, don't let it provoke you, Paul says. You can overlook it. You can overlook all things. You can control your emotions. You can control your responses. You can. And you want the other person to feel as if that last piece of pie was destined for them. You don't want to diminish their joy by being provoked by their behavior into something that leads them thinking fellowship is at risk. And don't take any of those wrongs into account, Paul says, which means we have to have the worst memory in the world when it comes to other people's offenses. No matter how often, no matter how severely someone may harm us, whether intentional or unintentional, we are quick to forgive and forget. That's what love looks like. And you know why that's what love looks like? Because that's what the Father has done for us. When someone else misuses their spiritual gift, let it go. Let it go. And then in verses 6 and 7, he taught that love was never to be on the wrong side of the facts. We don't celebrate unrighteous actions. We don't celebrate unrighteous causes. We don't stand with unrighteous people. Instead, we rejoice with the truth. We want justice. We want truth to reign. But friends, we can't allow our wants for these things to put other aspects of love at risk. For example, we can't let forgiveness go by the wayside. We can't be letting ourselves be provoked because unrighteous people do unrighteous things. We have to keep all of this in balance. In love, we look for ways to advocate for truth and righteousness, but doing it without causing offense to those with whom we disagree. We operate our gift in accordance with the truth of Scripture. And Paul summarizes all of this with this fantastic phrase. I think when we get to this point in the wedding, everybody starts reciting it together. Paul says, we bear all things, we believe all things, we hope all things, and we endure all things. But what's implied in that verse is a phrase he doesn't state And that is all things for Christ's sake, for Christ's sake. Christian love bears all that the world will bring us for Christ's sake. Christian love believes all that is written in Scripture for the sake of Christ. 
We hope for all the promises God has given in his word. We endure all the trials. We do all of these things for Christ's sake. And we use our gifts in love for Christ's sake. That's why we're in the body of Christ. Those qualities of love are the secret ingredient. So if you want to take your gift as God's given and put it to work here, I certainly hope you do. Then don't forget the love of Christ binds us, but it also enables us. To be useful to one another and to God. That love must be sacrificial and unconditional. It must be both our motivation and our goal. We are moved out of the love of God to serve his people. But our goal in service is to reflect God's love to others and not upon ourselves. The Corinthians, everything they did was motivated by pride and selfishness, not by love. Every goal they had was personal achievement and attention rather than to benefit the body. And so what did they accomplish? Nothing. Next week we're in chapter 14 and we'll go into his correction in high gear, actually finishing 13 and into 14. Let's pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you'd remind us of so many things that we forget so easily. Father, I'll leave it to the Spirit to speak into each heart here what he or she might do in response to what you've given. For you can do that far better than I could. But I do ask, Father, for one thing, that no matter how we serve and what we do, no matter who you may bring into these walls on a given weekend, Father, I pray that you would give each of us a true and abiding understanding of what love looks like. Let us practice love in all its dimensions, one to another, Father. For I know, Lord, if we are working in love, all things are possible. And yet if we lack it, we profit nothing. Give us love, Father, for you, for each other, for the world around us, that we may seek them for the sake of the gospel. And in the day we see you face to face, Father, we'll know love in a way we've never understood. I pray, Lord, that we will have had a moment of it here as we prepare for that day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.